Hello, Dental Online Trainers. Dr. Dennis Hartley here with you. I'm so excited today to share with you my conversation that I had with Mr. Todd Williams. So Todd's not a dentist, but he comes to us with a background in the medical field. Plus, he's got a background in hospitality, having worked with the Four Seasons Hotel Group for many years. I think you're going to find the information that Todd shares with us to be incredibly valuable for working with your team. In this first part of our interview, Todd's going to talk about, he's going to give us great tips about engagement with our patients and about holding on to relationships and what really matters and about how to make meaningful connections with people through stories. So enjoy the recording with Todd and look forward to seeing you at our second recording when Todd's going to share more about career paths and sort of how he got into it. It's going to be a great conversation. So enjoy this sharecast and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for joining us. Hello, dental online trainers. Wow, what a day. I am so glad and grateful to have a, a person. I, I Actually, I guess I can start to call you a friend now, Todd. I think we've gotten there. Todd is a speaker who is somewhat unique in our dental industry because he talks to dentists, but doesn't really have a dental background. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to sort of figure out and learn about Todd's pathway into talking dentist and talking to us about some of the great stuff that he's done. So first of all, Todd, welcome to our Dental Online Sharecast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Looking forward to this. So Todd, I first saw you and, you know, COVID has totally screwed up my my memory with timing, but I saw (laughs) you at this. Seriously, I... So I saw you at the Seattle Study Club annual meeting at Amelia Island at the at the yes. Ritz Carlton, and yes. I can't figure out if that was two years ago or three years ago. Two. <laughs> That's a good question. I believe it was two years ago. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm like so, you, two years ago. I'm trying to erase just, one of those years. Yeah, it's lost. It's like lost time. It's like it's like a blackout. Like I really went ago. out on the town. I really yeah. hit it hard, and then a year's <laughs> lost. But anyhow, I, I had heard your name several times from close colleagues of mine. Uh, George Mandelier had spoken really highly yeah. of you. George is a periodontist up here in the Chicago area. And he says, you got to see this guy speaking about you. And he talked about how you have this like four seasons experience and how you sort of bring that into the dental workplace with the, with the dental teams and sort of that four se- uh, seasons experience. And that totally captivated me. And I was super eager to see you. And when I saw you at Amelia in Amelia Island, I tell you, you blew me away. And I've seen a lot of speakers over 30 some years. And there's two things in particular that really um, struck me. Number one, you connected with the audience that few people are able to do. I mean, Frank Spear connects with an audience. John Coyce connects with his audience. But you, uh, you, you have this gift. It's, it's almost magical, man. You just, you just drew me in like I was tethered. It was crazy. But um, wow. I felt like you're speaking just to me, which was just amazing. Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Truly. And then what the other thing is um, my daughter's in marketing and I've really been fascinated by storytelling. And I think uh, like I, we've had an opportunity to speak with Paul Homily on the, on our Sharecast, and Paul's a fen- phenomenal storyteller, but I don't know that I've ever been around anybody who can share a story the way you do. And I'm super fascinated about that. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit down the road, but um, Definitely. so that was crazy good. So I want to fast forward though. So this Dude. past April, you were in Milwaukee speaking yeah. to Eddie Morales' study club. And Eddie's a periodontist up here in Milwaukee where I live. And he invited me, which is great because he knew what to, that I'm such a fan of yours because I guess I'm just like 
one of like your little stalkers or something. I'm not sure, but he, <laughs> but, but he, he figured it out. So he invited me. So I, I got to paint this picture for the audience because uh, you, you may remember this. So I was invited. I didn't bring my team. My team's down in Chicago, but my, my social partner, Angela, she's a dentist. She brought her team in and all the tables were set up for four people at the table because of the COVID yeah. restrictions. Right. And so we walked in and we weren't late, but we were sort of later people to get there. And of course, all the tables in the back of the room were filled. All the tables right. in the middle of the room were filled. <laughs> and then there was a couple tables at the front of the room. Yeah. So Angela and her team take the table that's stage left or they're on the left mm -hmm. of the stage looking at you. And they fill up the four seats there. And there's an empty table in the middle of the uh, right in front of you, right in the middle yeah. front row. And so I sit there and I figure, well, people are going to, you know, people are going to sort of join in, you know, people sort of latecomers <laughs> and they'll end up at my table with me and no one else came in. Oh, it was just you. So <laughs> it was just me. I was sitting in the center table right in front of you as you're doing your presentation. And if you did not engage the audience as well as you do, I would have thought that you and I were just having this like one-on-one -on -one conversation <laughs> yeah. and that for some reason, you're one of my weird friends that has to stand up and talk to me instead talk, of sitting down and talking to me. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. But talk about tethering in. I swear I took three pages of notes during that mm -hmm. uh, presentation. And afterwards I was, I was just so, I, I, the words that you speak and the, and the message that you bring, I just mm -hmm. thought, you know what, I, I have to ask if you'll share this with my audience. And so thank you for joining us. And I just Complete wanted to- Complete honor, ask. absolute honor. All right. So typically I will sort of work in the, in the back end and work our way through your, through your years, but I, I was hoping you could start out where you are now and sort yeah. of in your dental world and outside your dental world, but yeah. not how you got into dentistry yet, because I want to start in the back end and sort of figure, sort of pull the thread on that, figure out sort of how okay. you got to where, where you are now from where you were in the beginning. So Todd, talk us a little bit about where you are today. Uh, okay. We'll talk about how you got there in just a little bit. Sure. So today I work for myself, but I in primarily in two main industries, hospitality and hospitals, healthcare. And both of those at one time I was employed by. So there was for many, many, many years, I was the lead trainer for Four Seasons Hotels. And I was also employed by a couple of different healthcare groups, Centura Health in Colorado, and then later Advent Health throughout the nation. And now I work for myself, but I still pour into those two companies on a regular basis, as well as dentistry and others. Are you still affiliated with Four Seasons Hotel? I am. I'm considered their preferred consultant for opening. So what, what that became my specialty when I was with them, I opened up their new properties, helping to establish that culture that that hotel will be known for. You know, the idea is you have a brand with a reputation, with fans that will only stay at a Four Seasons, and we're going to open up a Four Seasons in a new city. And the idea is for a guest to be able to walk in on day one and say, yeah, this feels like a Four Seasons, not I should have given them a year to find their sea legs. And so it's those months that lead up to the opening of establishing that culture, building that culture and helping people understand what Four Seasons is really all about. People on the surface say it's about a luxury hotel, but it's really about just the way you feel when you're there. And that's what translates through all of my, but that's the through line in all of my work. It's working on how someone feels when they're in our care. That's so cool. I can't wait to talk more about that. I, I want to start in the in the beginning because yeah. I think it's fascinating what you're doing now and mm -hmm. sort of, and I've heard some of your background and, mm -hmm. I, and I want to get into that. And I think it'll help the audience. I, yeah. I think it's interesting. We have a lot of young listeners mm -hmm. and I can remember as a young dentist, when I would see someone who's now successful and they've sort of created a, a level of expertise 
it is so hard. It was so hard for me to even imagine they that they started out as someone similar to how you know I was at that at that point mm-hmm. in my career. And I think very often, and at least I did, I thought people just were born with these gifts and they yeah. sort of just walked their way into it. And there wasn't, yeah. there was already a path that was sort of just laid Carved out for them. Yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's why it's so interesting to sort of hear back or hear about the early stages and stuff. So the journey but, and the twist and the turns. Yeah. The yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause I think that's, I mean, as interesting as what we're going to talk about at the end, I think yeah. that's as interesting and I think maybe equally pivotal for people as you're trying to find, figure out their path, right? To understand yeah. that there's, there's going to be pivots. There's going to be, you know, there's going to be these, these stressors and these things that are going to occur in your life that you have to be able to overcome and change to be able to be yeah. successful at the end. So Agreed. remind me, Agreed. Where, where did you grow up? Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area, just right in between San Francisco and San Jose, right by Stanford. And Stanford, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, but, but you got to see it. <laughs> I have to see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, we, we've spoken and I know that I, I like learning about parents. I'll, I'll tell you the story. So my dad was originally, he was an auto worker for General Motors. He built Fleet, mm. Fleetwood Cadillacs. He was oh, wow. back in, he was back in Detroit and he was in the sweatshops when they were truly sweatshops and he wow. would come home and he'd just be a wet rag. And he really did not like that at all. He actually ended up leaving that when I was in middle school or high school. And he actually started to drive. He, he drove a bus for our local community, which he ended up loving. And as I think back about my dad, my dad was all about service. My dad was all, he talked about endlessly about these old people he'd help on the bus, these old ladies, and he'd make sure that they got off. And that was really just such a part of my dad. My mom, on the other hand, she was in sales. She sold costume jewelry and she was fantastic. You know, she's the person who could sell ice to an Eskimo. She was, she was phenomenal, always number one in the nation or one in the, in the zone. And as I look back at my dentistry, I realized that I sort of have this, this combination. I have this link between this, the service aptitude that my father had, but the ability of being able to help people understand what a difference what we can deliver will make for them in their lives, sort of the sales view that my mom took and how she approached people. And that sort of melded me into sort of the person I am and how I talk to people within, you know, relate to people in dentistry. So that's why I like sort of hearing about that stuff because I I look back and I'm like, boy, I would be a different person for sure without those influences, you know? Without that background. Yeah, completely agree. I think mine's very similar in the fact it had a similar influence, I should say. I had a much older dad. My father was born in 1910. So I joke, you know, some of my friends grew up with a generation gap in the house. I kind of grew up with two. You know, my friends were like, <laughs> we want a color TV. My dad's like, why TV? But he retired when I was a young kid. So my parents had 30 year difference between them. So I saw well, you know, one parent was the age of the rest of my friend's parents. And then one was so much older. And with my dad, he retired when I was a little kid. And so I joke sometimes that I didn't really grow up with a strong work ethic in the house. I kind of grew up with a retirement ethic. You know, people are like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, retire. My dad has that <laughs> job. It's a, it's a great job. I don't know why all these other guys do this different, this different no avenue. Kid. What but did he do before he retired? He worked for Pacific Gas and Electric. So PG&E, which, you know, their mm-hmm. reputation today is all over the place. But back then he was head of the gas department for the Bay Area, which to me, even in and of itself ties into the story later. I didn't realize until after my dad had passed away years later, really what a position he held within the company. Because after work, 
and I don't mean at five o'clock at night, I mean, after his retirement, he didn't talk about status. He never talked about, he wasn't the guy saying, you know, as head of this area, head of the entire gas department for the Bay Area, which, you know, if you think about it, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, he was head of the gas department. Yeah. I would have never known that. And I really didn't realize his influence until his, until he passed. And we had a celebration service and hundreds of people showed up that were just word of mouth and heard about my dad passing. And, you know, it was meant to be a, a positive service. And, you know, we, if anybody wants to get up and say something about my dad and the line of people that I'd never met in my entire life who got up and told stories about my dad that I'd never heard, that I never knew, it was the most fascinating day to, to see this entire work life that had sort of been hidden my whole life. What kind of stuff did they say about your dad that was uh, the kind so of leader he you? was, the the way he would listen, the way he would support his team, the the stories of, you know, your father was my boss. And I remember, and then they would tell a story about a time my dad had their back or the way my dad's office door was always open. But it's just interesting. In my life, my dad never talked about the office door, but he lived an open door life. If a neighbor came by, I would always see my dad welcome anybody in. My dad was always serving the neighborhood. He went out and bought a station wagon after he'd retired just so he could fill it with tools to help people that needed something to be done. So as I heard these stories from the workplace, they certainly matched the dad I knew. I just never saw it associated with work. I saw it associated. It was a behavior. It was the way he served humans. Right. And to me, growing up, our house, you know, we would have friends over for dinner. My parents would invite friends over and they tended to be around my dad's age group. So you'd sit at the dinner table and everybody had gray hair. I was an only child. And, you know, I grew up with that children to be seen, not heard at the dinner table. So I'd eat my meal, but I'd be listening to the conversations. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's nothing but retired people at the table. And they're talking about the softer things in life, you know, they're talking about love. They're talking about it's our umpteenth anniversary, or we just met the great grandkid the other day, or we're taking a vacation. So where other kids, I think, sat at the table at that age, hearing dad talk about the latest strategic plan at the, you know, at the office, I heard about who just bought a Winnebago and can't wait to tour the coast of California. What an influence. Um, That's, that's, that's really interesting, right? Parlays into everything I talk about today. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people also hear like the stresses that are going on with work and stuff like that. That's sort of what I grew up with. I mean, not all of it. I mean, that was an everyday conversation, but there, were, there was certainly that, right? The stresses. But it doesn't sound like that was a big part of the conversations around the dinner table. No, and I think that's a really good point to make because I think what I saw wasn't that my dad didn't have stress. I think it was kind of that preview. I feel like I, I used to joke, if life's a book, I feel like I got to read the end of the book early because there's a few influences. So my dad was older, so I was seeing what matters at the end of life. My sure. mom, even though she was younger, she worked, she was the activities director for three convalescent homes in the area, assisted living oh. homes. So I would go and help her sometimes if she was hosting bingo, I would, you know, help her host bingo, you know, she'd stand up front B4 and I'd beat the guy by the wheelchair saying B4, (laughs) elderly lady. And then later I I got into healthcare and a lot of my work was with, you know, the uh, orthopedic wing where I was seeing older folks that might've, you know, a, a joint gave out and they had it replaced. So I just feel I had a lot of people in my life towards the end of the book, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it wasn't that these people didn't have stress. I like to say it's just sometimes you see what actually floats. And if you think about life and all the stressors that we have in the workplace, in the end, those aren't the things that last. You don't have the person at 75 still thinking about what they should have said in that meeting. 
even though back here that day was almost a turning point in their career, in the end, that didn't last. But the way they treated each other at the office, the way they delivered respect, felt respect, changed jobs to find a place for a culture of respect, those things matter in life. Respect lasts. Love lasts. Relationships last. And all the things that we spend our wheels on today tend to be temporary in the book. They don't seem to make it to the last chapter. So I think that's why sitting around the dinner table, I didn't hear a lot about the stress of work is because it wasn't that they were consciously pushing the stress away. It didn't last. Those things that we spin our wheels over that we think are make or break moments in life with a big perspective shift don't matter as much as we think they do. And seeing that at the end of life was really interesting. And trust me, later I ran into all those stressors, but, and I'll talk about that if the questions go there, but I think that's why at the dinner table, we didn't hear about that. Can I ask you a question? So as you may have heard, um, dentistry is kind of a high stress profession. You know, we, we used to lead the, lead the league in suicides. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think fortunately that we're, that's not such an issue, but it's a stressful occupation. So I think we could all sort of rationalize that, right? Like, Hey, you know, this is just this, you know, particular patient or a particular team member or a particular Mm -hmm. event and say, we need to set that behind and not let that bring us down or or affect us in our, especially in our relationships, right? Outside of the workplace Mm -hmm. or even inside the workplace. So you can know that, but how do you, how do you, how do you bring that in? Like, cause I struggle with that. I'll be honest. I'm better at, at my age at 58, way better at it than I was at 48. Um, But still, I wouldn't say I'm great at it. It's still there. Sure. Yeah. And it's the same for me. I'm in the workplace and I, I have these stressors and I have them as well. And You know, especially, you know, we talk in the beginning about not having a background in dentistry. And yet the irony is I've been speaking with dentists now for four plus years on a regular basis all year. That's probably the biggest audience I have. So what I've learned along the way ties into how I would answer that question. And I think it's key to understand when I said the stressors don't make it in the end, they tend to float away. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they weren't important and valid things to navigate and struggle through in the workplace. So I think there's two parts to the way I would answer that. Number one, it's just keeping the perspective that this is here and now. It's okay to stress about the way this went with the patient. It's okay to agonize over the way this is going with my team because it matters now. I think the good news is it's not a forever thing. I do know that a couple of years from now, this isn't going to matter as much as it does today, which almost helps me pour into it with a little more intention because I realize this matters now. It's important today. It may not be four, four years from now. So today I can give it my all. I don't have to meter for a life of this. I can give it my all. So I think that's a nice way to balance the stress. And I think the second thing is trying to pull, I, I, there's a phrase I, I don't like. I, when I hear people say work-life balance, it drives me crazy because it's acting as though you can separate work from life. Right. And so then you get people say, okay, Todd, work-life integration. You're still acting like it's a separate thing you're fitting into life. Right. Work is a part of life. Yeah. And I think we wear so many hats in today's society that we burn ourselves out changing hats. And I have the leader hat. I have the boss hat. I have the caregiver hat. I have the dentistry hat. I have the husband, partner, cousin, neighbor hat. I think a lot tying into what you heard when I grew up and seeing the end of the book and the many, many experiences I've had since then and all I've learned and, the, and especially the research and data that seems to back this up. We do a much better job when we serve the human in front of us. What's the best thing I can bring to the next person that comes across my 
path, whether that's a family member, whether that's a patient, whether it's the most challenging patient I've had this year, or it's a patient that I'm thrilled walked in the door, my long-term team member or my brand new team member, each one deserves the same thing. And that's my best. And so if the hat I'm wearing is how do I become the best servant that I can be, the best caregiver I can be. I love your story. When you talk about your background of your dad wanted to serve and your mom was a salesperson, but yet selling people things that truly benefit them. Yeah. Right. Not selling for the commission. It was selling to improve things. I, I get that. So you bring that together. I'm serving you by showing you what can be better, helping you achieve great results in your life and feeling satisfaction in that. I don't, have one particular group I would want to do that to. I want family to feel that I'm there to serve them and help them achieve their best life. I want my teammates to feel that. So I think that's how I deal with the stress is that it's just the day-to-day. It's not work, it's life. And in the end, I do know that the good things, the softer things, the things that are hard to measure my passion for serving others. I don't think your dad could have ever given you a rating if you said, you know, hey dad, what's your service level at today? Oh, right. 67%, but I'm shooting for 72. Right. But we get into the workplace and, oh, we feel so good when we put a metric on everything. And yet the things right. that matter most can't be measured. So true. And so true. I think Einstein once said that not everything that's measured matters and not everything that matters can matters. be measured. For sure. One of the things I've learned also is that by having experience, I know I can get myself out of a particular jam. It might be a patient that I'm struggling with. And that jam might be giving the patient back their money and letting them go their own way. Because I've done mm-hmm. that. And that's that's actually very successful <laughs> to not have that, have that, patient that problem anymore. But a lot of times it's just sort of working through the issue and, and talking to colleagues and getting advice yeah. and working through. So having that experience does make me feel more rested in that. Yes, I'm going to get through this. This isn't any fun, not fun for me, for the patient, for the staff, whatever. But there's a there's an end in sight. I know we'll get through this and this will be okay in the end. I think there's experience that helps with that. And for young dentists, I think reaching out to more seasoned dentists, people with experience and, yeah. and get that, get that peace of mind that you're going to get through this and get that, get that mentorship. I think that's so, so important. Yeah. Dennis, if I can jump right there for a second to into something you made me think of, I remember there was a time when I was in my hotel years with Four Seasons and I was at one particular hotel and we had a guest checking in that from the calls ahead of time, just knew it was going to be trouble, going to be a challenge. And I was the lead manager in the front office that day. And so I had coached the employees, hey, if this guy at all begins to cause a fuss, I'll be out there in a second. And he caused a fuss and I went out there and I was proud of my prep. And so no matter what he said... I had, I was like, nope, I have, you know, this is in the day of faxes and I have a fax here that says this. I have a record of a call. The person you're saying you spoke to on the phone was actually me. And I was just, you know, proud that I had prepped enough to not let this guy win. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he kept asking for, you know, I want someone above you. And finally my boss who happened to be there that day, which, you know, normally I was the lead highest level person at that moment, but my boss was there and he came out and he took over the situation and he quickly gave the guest what they needed and what they wanted. And of course the guest played into this right away and said, thank you so much. I'll remember your name. Then he looked over at me and said, I'll remember your name. I'm calling home office about you. So I remember I told the the front desk agent, I said, you know, I'm going to go back in the back with Greg. One of us may not come out alive. And I went back there and I said, what 
what was that? I have my research. And he stopped me and he says, where were you going? And I'll never forget that. He didn't have to follow. He, he did follow, but he, he, that could have been enough. He just said, where were you going? You know, it's, 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 you're racing with a loser to what, to win, mm-hmm. to be the better loser. And he said, but this was key. He says, after I kind of humbled out and realized I'd gotten sucked into a race in which there is no winner, he said, just go out there and pour everything into the next good guest and watch how good it feels. And so that sure enough, you know, a little bit later in the day, this young couple checks in and they're like, hi, it's our honeymoon and we can barely afford, you know, two nights, but we have a basic room. And I just remember that feeling of like, oh, you think you do. Wait yeah. till you see the room you're in. Wait till you see. And sometimes some of the best advice I've ever had, don't get into the race to prove you're as bad as they are. Let them do what they do. But then the fastest way to get over it is give everything to the next wonderful person in front of you. And some of the best, most practical advice, and I still to this day think, all right, you were tough to deal with, but boy, are you about to be blessed. And I think that just really. That's that's great advice because in any industry, you're going to have the people that are just going to rattle you. And yeah. and they're, and they're going to rattle the everybody. And, every, and yeah. anything they go through, they're going to rattle every single person, right? This is just who they yeah. are, right? They, yeah. And so and we all have to them. deal with it. Nope. Yeah. And you're not going to win and yeah. it's, it's going to be unpleasant, but I think you're right. And then you get to just shower the people who are wonderful with more wonderful. At least accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it refills it's- you so quick. You know, I tell people growing up, we're all taught the phrase to give is to receive. And yet there's so many studies out there that show that when it's almost self-serving to give to somebody, you know, if you're dealing with stress, find someone who's stressed out and help them through it and watch what it does to you. For sure. And so I tell people maybe the better version of that phrase for 2022 and on, especially after the last two years is to give is to relieve Uh, because you relieve the person of their burden, but ironically you relieve yourself too. So I find that a great way to bring a little relief to a stressful life is just to serve harder. Well, you know, I think we all go through these situations where we have this record spinning in our head. We go down these rabbit holes. It's all about us, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I have found that when I can like pull myself out of that and by mm-hmm. serving others, doing something, it could be yeah. simply just going and bringing in donuts for the office staff. It could yeah. be bringing a gift. It could be making dinner for Angela. It could be any number of things, but it takes me out of my you know, yeah. self-centeredness, right? Yeah. And it, it does. It just brings you out of that little pity party and it brings you into what we're called to do is really serve others and, and yeah. really gives us better perspective. And I think it's great to realize that the pity party is allowed. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But it's also our responsibility to get ourselves out of it. It can it can drag us down too far. There's yep. a great way. Ladder out is to serve someone else. Oh, that's that's a great way to put it. That's that's a great yeah. expression. Yeah. I want to ask you something about your background. So so you grew up when you're in high school. I'm curious. I'm always super curious when I'm talking to people what they were like in high school, because yeah. those are such defining years and stuff. So good student, bad student. What kind of student were you? That's a great question. I'd say middle of the road. I could get my A's, but I worked for. You know, I had the friends uh-huh. that didn't seem to do anything and got the A and I, sure. I, I would sweat to get that A. But I was, this is funny, and this followed me through college too. I was an observer and I would sit in class and I would watch, sometimes to my own detriment, you know, look at that. So that's what a student looks like when they're listening to the teacher. That's what a teacher <laughs> looks like. <when> meanwhile, <laughs> Now, I want to look today, like that. I so talk about I'm people's listening. relationships. So it turned out it worked okay. I got what I needed out of school. But I was an observer. And I think I had this, maybe like your dad, but even younger, just a desire to serve my classmates. And my first 
aim in my career is I wanted to be a youth minister, not in a, you know, it was less about religion. It was more at my time in my life in high school, youth ministers were simply people that were out there saying, look, we get it. High school is a really tough, awkward time. There's a lot of things going on. Homes can be incredibly challenging. We're here to be sort of a, a rock to lean on an example, not to preach at you, not to tell you you could live a better life, but just as you navigate a tough time, we're here to navigate it with you, side by side with you. And later ending up in healthcare, thanks to a funny little turn, I realized it was the same through line. I started in the emergency room in healthcare. And I remember, you know, nobody comes into the emergency room wanting to be told, well, you're here because you made an accident, you know, because you were- Because <laughs> you're a dumb enough on that ladder. Yeah. Just walk with me through this vulnerable time. Help right. me get myself back on track. Just partner with me in this time of need. And to this day, that's the core of my work is just partnering with people, whether it's on the clinical side or it's helping the patients or that relationship. It's how do we become better partners to people in need? And that started in high school. And I, I think there was a, I was a popular student for different reasons. I think anytime you hear popular student, it was the person at the party. It was the person on the football team or whatever. And I found that there was this, people were magnetically drawn to someone who was there for them. You know, I heard a podcast the other day, a guy referred to it as inverse charisma. In other mm -hmm. words, when people spend time with you, they leave feeling better about themselves. They feel better. And yeah. so I saw the youth ministers doing that for people. And I think I wanted to emulate that. So that was my goal was to see if I could make whoever I was with feel better about themselves. Wow. Where'd you go to college? Went off to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, private Christian liberal arts college. And then had a turn and ended up in healthcare. So even though it wasn't my studies, it wasn't where I was headed. So you you went to college planning on going into youth ministry. That was sort of your focus was going to be. What, did you study psychology? Did, what did what was I was headed towards my MDiv and Masters in Divinity. And then oh. my dad, because of the age difference, this all ties together. He yeah. suffered several heart attacks and consecutive and was in ICU and CCU ended up being a total of six months, but I left school to go up and take care of my dad and to help my mom through that time. Sure. And then after uh -huh. my dad came out of the hospital, they said, your dad may have anywhere from two weeks to six months to live. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to stay here and soak up this gift of time and mm -hmm. figure out what to do. And was began working in a hospital and putting together what I'd studied into, you know, even in ministry, was studying relationships with people. And so that certainly worked in healthcare. And then my dad lived seven more years. Oh, and what so, a blessing. Yeah. And I had some wonderful times with him and I went on and I began to get my degree in the school of life from that point on. And so, so I went back been... for ministry and just continued to work and stayed in the workplace and worked my way through healthcare. And then later on, if you want to go there, I can tell you how I took the turn to hospitality and how I brought it all together today. Before we go there, because I, I think that's fascinating and, I, and I'm super eager to share that. You, you have this in, innate ability, or I don't know if it's innate, you have an incredible mm -hmm. ability to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, did one of your folks, your mom or your dad, were they were they like that? Did they have like, were they just like a person who could just weave a story? Did they just like, just, were, did they have that? Or No, I, I, and I've thought of that before. I don't, it didn't come from my parents. And I'm trying to think it was just influential people in my life. Again, being a part of that youth group growing up, a lot of times yeah. I would listen to people 
empathize well with what I, I'm, I'm looking at this counselor in front of a room when I'm in a youth group and I'm thinking, I know this counselor's not in high school, but they sure seem to understand high school. And oh. it was the way they told the story. It was the way they mm-hmm. could describe my situation to where I felt, hey, I trust you because you understand me. So maybe that's where it came from. I think over time, it was just getting more and more comfortable in seeing how much an audience needs someone to take them to a better place. It's interesting. You said something earlier. You said, when I was sitting in the front in Milwaukee, you said it felt like a conversation. And I teach public speaking and I tell people all the time, the very first thing I want to teach you, my public speaking sessions or classes are very, very different than what most sessions are. Lose the word presentation. I don't want you to be on stage giving a presentation. I know it is a presentation. And even if you have slides and data to show, but it's a conversation. We're having a conversation right now. And it's a conversation. You said it so funny because without knowing that's where I go all the time. The only difference is you're having a conversation from a stage, but it's still a conversation. And even when I'm doing 99% of the talking, because I'm a speaker, every nod, every cock of the head, every, when somebody turns to the person and says something and then looks back up, you, you know, that's the other side of the conversation. There's a reason I rarely come with slides. It's because I don't want my presentation driven by slides. I know what I want to say, but it's mm-hmm. going to come out in the order of the conversation, just like you, when you sit down. So do dinner. you change? So if you have a presentation, and we, we've talked mm-hmm. about this before, that uh, you, you told me once that someone had asked you what you're going to talk about, and you said, well, I'll figure it out when I get up there. Do you? And that's true. Do you have, will you pivot then in your presentation based on yes. the reaction from, you do. So someone, you're, you're having, you're on a path and you think you're going to go this way, but then you see the reaction and you're going to, you, you will just sort of naturally shift to follow yes. that path. And I tell people, you know, it has to be explained because sometimes it sounds like you're just saying you're going to wing it when you get up there, but it's not that <laughs> at all. It's, you have a backpack full of stories. I know the aim. So I would ask you and I would say, where do you want this audience to go? What are the three most important things you want this audience to leave with today? I have a backpack of things that I guarantee you will get them there. The order they come out will depend on that audience. The analogy I use sometimes, it's a little bit like an emergency room. I can't go to an ER at the beginning of the day and say, tell me who you're going to treat today and specifically what you're going to prescribe. Yeah, but I'm ready. I have, I have a full team, everything's ready, but I need to see who arrives at the door before I begin to tell you what I'm going to do. And it's the same thing. So it's preparing for whatever that audience may bring. And I think it's the same thing. You scale that right down to your day in an office. What are you going to say to this next patient? You know, because people say, what do I say to a patient? Well, well, let's wait and see what the patient shows, but I'll right. give you things that work. I'll give you keys. It's, it's a little bit like a locksmith. You know, you, a locksmith plays with a lock until they hear that click. And we refer to that all the time. How do you know the relationship got better? Well, we finally clicked. And what makes it click, you, you have to pick that lock. So it's showing up with a toolkit, whether it's a patient, whether it's a long-term team member that's a little challenging, or it's a sure. speaking event, you're ready to unlock who's in front of you. You're prepared, you're ready to go, but you'll pivot to their needs. And I think sure. that's when people say, hey, you know, the storytelling felt good. Well, hopefully it's because you felt that story was for you and not right. because it's what I had to say. So let me ask you, because for someone like myself who gives scientific presentations, right? I'm going to teach people on, I, I teach a lot on direct resin bonding techniques, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Aesthetic dentistry stuff. So when I'm doing a big presentation, I can't really, I mean, I got to follow my slides. This is, sure. you know, you have 50 minutes or whatever, but what I have been able to do in workshops when say there's 30 people or, you know, 30, 40 people, we often will stop 
if someone has a question and then we will sort of like, okay, let me go, let me go to this slide or let me pull this up or let me draw on this image and things. Is there a way to do that? Do you think in a big presentation though? Even if you are working with slides and stuff. Yeah. And I get that question all the time. People say, well, my work's different. Therefore, and I'm like, no, 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 wait, don't push it away. It's it, we're the same. You're still speaking to your audience. So there are times I have data that I'm showing as well. How do I open mm-hmm. up a hotel? How do I open up? A, so my other work is in hospitals. I oversee the culture of several hospitals across the nation. That's very data driven. Mm-hmm. And we have specific numbers that we're talking about. But I joke and I say, you know, we've done blood testing. It turns out I haven't found an audience yet that doesn't test as human. They're all <laughs> human. And it's understanding, and I think you mentioned him earlier, but Coyce understands his audience he's showing the slides to. And so he'll show a slide, but then he'll comment on what he knows people are thinking when they see that slide. And so it keeps it going back and forth between the data I'm presenting, but the humans that I'm conversing mm-hmm. with. And so I think that's a great way to bring some life and some storytelling into you know, if, I, if I'm going through a slideshow and I've done this slideshow 50 times and I know right. that by slide 30, it gets a little dry, stop right. and say exactly that to your room. Mm. You know, hey, I'll tell you where I go. About this slide right here, I find my thoughts are going in three different directions. And one of them is what's for dinner. <laughs> but I That's also great. know how important the patient feels this slide is. And the patient doesn't know this matters, but it does matter to them, which renews my interest. So now the audience is like, this person knows me. And they're right back into your data. They're right back into the slides because you took a break for a moment and addressed the human out there. Yeah, because I might've gone to a conference as Dr. So-and-so, but I'm also really trying to figure out what to feed my kids tonight. Sure. And I'm sorry, that's on my mind too. And when you tell me you realize that, oh my gosh, I'm right back in again. So I think it's, it's a almost, phenomenal way. It's almost like sort of just accepting their humanness and uh, saying, you know, hey, no shame here. We're all human. Let's recalibrate. This is this mm-hmm. is why we're talking about this. And and I go there too. Yeah, that's. I think that's really, that's really interesting. And I think that it's so difficult to be vulnerable when you're, when you're presenting, right? Because you're mm-hmm. supposed to be the expert, you know, and to, to show that human side of it's so important, but that's, I think, probably one of the most challenging for most presenters out there. And I would jump on that real quick. And the reason you saw me get excited, we used to say this in Four Seasons, people would say, how do you guys figure out in Four Seasons what to do to amaze the guests? And I said, you just do the opposite of whatever frustrates a guest. It's that easy. (laughs) Whatever's been doing done, just do the opposite of whatever's usually done. And that's the thing. If it's typical and if it's normal and you do something different, it stands out. So to your point, when you just said it's hard to be vulnerable as a presenter, because we're told you shouldn't be vulnerable as a presenter. And when a presenter gets up on stage and says, you know, not not getting up and saying, golly, I'm nervous today. My throat's dry. That's not what I'm referring to. But if I get up in front of people and I say, I have something to present today that is incredibly important to me. And I still to this day wonder if it's as important to an audience as it is to me. But I'll tell you what you're going to get today is what drives my heart each and every day. This is what this is my calling. This is I feel that there's so much purpose in my life behind what I'm about to present. Now, that's as vulnerable as you can get. Sure. And yep. watch the audience put their stuff down, sit up, because now you're different. Right. You just you went there. And so it's funny when you say we're taught not to be vulnerable, what a terrible thing to teach. Be you up there and watch people gravitate to you. Yeah. Well, I, I know truer words and it's easier as I've gotten older and, you know, watching someone like Frank Spear who would show his failures. I mean, that's mm-hmm. right in the early days. I'm like, boy, this is someone who can show their failures is just it's at strong. such a different level. Right. Yeah. They, but we're they, taught they, the opposite, they, right? That's weak. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And especially you can do is say, here's where I messed up. In in this world of social media and where there's there's no forgiveness and people are only showing the very, very best stuff, it right makes it even life. more challenging. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd Williams as much as I enjoyed speaking with Todd. I mean, you could tell because we just kept on talking and that's why we had to break this into two separate interviews or two parts. So look forward to part two hitting your podcast station soon. And I really hope you enjoyed that part one of our, of our interview with Todd. Now also look out, we are doing our Black Friday promotion for dental online training. If you are interested in becoming a dental online training member, Check out our website at www.dothandson.com. That's one word, dothandson.com. So check us out for our great Black Friday promotion. We got some courses that we're going to be giving with the kit. And we have our course that's coming up in December that you'll be able to be part of at no additional cost. So check that out. All right. Look forward to seeing you soon. So thanks for joining us. I'm yours for better dentistry, Dr. Dennis Hartley. Thanks so much for listening to the ShareCast. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe to our ShareCast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're loving the ShareCast, share it with your colleagues. And please rate it and leave us a review. Also, if you want access to fantastic clinical, managerial, and leadership tips to help you in your practice of dentistry, check us out at dothandson.com or find me on Instagram at HartleyDDS. This episode was created with special help from Clear O'Neill. It was edited by Ashley Dixon Ellison and with original music by Chris Peterson. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, yours for better dentistry.